This is a Rooster Teeth production. December 22, 1999. Korean Air Flight 8509, a Boeing 747 cargo flight with four people on board, is taken off from London's Stansted Airport bound for Milan, Italy in the evening for its final flight of the day. The plane has already flown from Seoul, South Korea to Uzbekistan to London. The flight is delayed on the ground as there is a mix-up with the flight's paperwork and a malfunction with the tug that is supposed to push it back from the gate. Finally, an hour behind schedule, the plane takes off but things immediately go haywire. The captain is trying to bank the aircraft to the left but his instruments show that the plane is refusing to bank. The flight engineer is calling out bank as alarms are going off in the cockpit. The plane slams into the ground less than a minute after takeoff, killing all four on board. What happened to cause this cargo flight to crash? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. Here with another episode, a cargo flight. We normally do, you know, passenger flights, but we've done a couple of cargo flights in the past. Mm-hmm. Like the the one that always sticks out to me is this like the... It was the fight that was in the UPS one. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. FedEx 705. Uh-huh. It was FedEx, not UPS. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was an early one for us, too. It was a really early episode. Yeah. Before we get started, of course, I like to remind people to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we got you covered. We'll show images and uh, things that maybe are difficult to, to picture in your head, in your mind's eye while listening to the podcast. Mm, mind's eye. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a new uh, reminder for everyone to check out blackboxdownpod.com. You can get information there. If you would like to subscribe for $2.99 a month, you could get ad-free versions of the podcast as well as getting access to the podcast earlier than uh, the general public. So all the information's out over there on blackboxdownpod.com. Yeah, and we really appreciate anyone who signed up for that because it really helps us make the show. Yeah, so easy way to directly support the show if you want. Okay, so we're talking about Korean Air Cargo Flight 8509. Mm -hmm. Like we said, it was a cargo flight that originally took off from Seoul, South Korea, headed over to Milan, Italy, But on the way, it stopped in Uzbekistan and London back on December 22nd, 1999. The flight was crewed by Captain Park Duk-kyu, who was 57 years old, had 13,490 flight hours. The first officer was Yoon Ki-suk, who was 33 with 1,406 flight hours. And the flight engineer was Park Hoon-kyu, who was 38 with 8,301 flight hours. And there was also uh, a ground engineer uh, who was in uh, on this flight as well. He was in the cockpit, Kim Il-suk, who was 45. And this plane was a 19-year-old Boeing 747. It had 83,011 hours and 15,451 cycles. And like I said, since it's a cargo flight, it's only mm-hmm. that crew and that mechanic who were on board. So the aircraft arrived in London at Stansted Airport at 3.05 p.m., but a different crew flew it in. This crew was picking up the flight from London to uh, Milan. The flight engineer for the previous leg made an entry in the technical log saying that the captain's attitude director indicator was unreliable in role, and he verbally told the ground engineer when leaving the aircraft. The ADI is like, what you picture, it's like the the instrument that's blue on top and brown on the bottom. We've talked about, about this before, how in the Soviet aircraft mm-hmm. it rolls a different way. Yeah, yeah. But in Western aircraft it rolls uh, a certain way. So it's basically just a um, an instrument that shows you your bank angle, and your pitch. Yeah, like where you are in relation to the ground, right? Exactly, like yeah. Per, Our, like turned-wise, right? Or, or right. tilted up and down or left to right. Exactly. So the new crew, you know, like I said, the previous flight engineer said there was a problem. 
And, um, you know, they, they were done. They were done for the day. So they take off. So then the new crew starts boarding the aircraft and they were handed their navigation logs and weather information. Captain then made sure the load was secure with the load controller uh, uh-huh. and the ground engineer boarded the aircraft. And we've talked about this before, you know, all the loads have to be secured down so that there's no movement in flight and everything's safe. Uh-huh. There's some issues with air traffic control not having their flight plan and some issues with the tug that was supposed to push them back from the gate. So, like I said, there were some delays. Uh-huh. They started taxiing around 6.23 p.m. During the taxi, the captain voiced some concerns about his distance measuring equipment because it was displaying 399 nautical miles. So just, again, like another weird little quirk. His distance measuring tool? And what is that? Distance measuring equipment. Um, So we've kind of talked about this before. We'll sometimes refer to it as DME. It's like tools that they can serve a multitude of functions. Specifically, we talked about it in a recent Turkish Airlines incident where the DME measures the distance from the plane to the ground. Remember, I I said it was showing like negative eight feet in that episode recently. Mm -hmm. I think in this case, what they're using the DME for is to show their distance to a waypoint that they're supposed to get to. Okay, and it was just incorrect. Right. It, it's showing that their waypoint's 399 miles away, which is not correct because the first officer says his is also showing the same. And then the captain asks him, how are they going to identify that their actual point, which is 1.5 miles away, not 399 oh. miles away? It's yeah. Like, after they take off, it's like the first point they're supposed to get to. That's way off. Yeah, way off. Yeah, like I felt it was important to say that because like you wonder like, oh, how how inaccurate is it? Entirely inaccurate would be the, <laughs> the correct answer. But at that moment when they're talking about this, the flight engineer chimes in and says, now it's working correctly. So who knows what the issue was, but you know, the flight engineer gets it sorted. The crew were then cleared for takeoff at 636 and shortly after passing 900 feet, the captain confirmed they should turn, you know, at 1.5 miles at the DME. And then again, he says his DME was not working. There's a short exchange between the captain and the first officer confirming the departure heading after the turn. And then the flight engineer calls out bank, bank. So they're, you know, they're trying to figure out what's wrong, you know, where they, where they need to, which direction specifically they need to go and where they need to turn. And the other crew had noted that the, what, the, the, the bank? ADI, Attitude ADI. Director Indicator. That wasn't working. On the captain's side. Okay. Is what they said. Typically, there's going to be multiple ones in the cockpit. Did they know that? The new Oh, crew? man. You drilled right into the issue, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> so they told the ground engineer and they, you know, the person who would, who would have fixed it is the mechanic who's in the cockpit with them. Remember, I said, I said that like, there's a captain, a first officer, uh-huh. the navigator, and I said there's also a mechanic in the cockpit okay. with them. Yeah, yeah. He's the, he's the person who would have been responsible for fixing the ADI. So... Even if the crew doesn't know at this point, the person who was told and who should have fixed it is sitting there in the cockpit. He didn't do anything. At this point right now? No, he's not saying anything. Okay. Oh, yeah, oh I, see, I see what you're saying. Mm, we're we're going to get to what he did. Yeah, I don't want okay. to jump, jump ahead too far. So, you know, while this is going on, they're climbing out, talking about, you know, their direction. Uh, mm-hmm. for flight engineers calling out bank, bank. The tower transfers the flight from one frequency to another. They transfer them to London Control when they pass through 1,400 feet. Uh, Shortly after, the first officer acknowledges this, and the captain asked him to request vectors, and the flight engineer then made a more urgent bank call out. Mm. The air assistant, who's sitting next to the tower controller in the tower, watched the flight take off and said everything went normal, you know, as it it climbed, the flight climbed up into the clouds. They heard no radio calls from the aircraft after the frequency change instruction. But then the personnel in the tower saw an explosion to the south of the airport, and they realized that flight 8509 crashed uh, and immediately started their emergency procedures at 640. 
everyone on board was killed in the crash and the aircraft was destroyed. Mm. So it happened very, very yeah. quickly after takeoff. Like, I think within a minute of takeoff, it crashed. Oh, ugh. So the investigation was carried out by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch uh-huh. in the UK. And, you know, of course, they're going to look into the previous leg, you know, when it flew from Uzbekistan to Stansted Airport in uh-huh. London. Because obviously the plane flew that leg fine. So, you know, what changed to cause the plane to actually crash on this leg? So when that previous crew took off, they started a right turn. And when the bank angle reached about 10 or 15 degrees, the attitude comparator uh, warning activated. And this is a warning that activates to let them know that the different ADIs in the cockpit are giving different information. Because mm-hmm. like I said, there's, there should be three different ADIs in the cockpit. There's one in front of the captain, there's one in front of the first officer, and then there's a third one that's independent of either of them. That way, and we've talked about this in mm-hmm. the past about like inertial reference units and inertial navigation units, about how they're each connected to a different unit so that they can look and see like, oh, if one's not working right, they look at, see like which two match up. The two that match must be correct and the one that doesn't match must be wrong. So this warning goes off to let them know one of them, one of the ADIs is different than the others. But just the captains. So yeah, I mean, so they look down, you know, they hear the alarm and they look and the captain looks at his, first officer is looking out and they realize what's wrong. The captain gives, and this is a previous flight, of course, I'm still talking mm-hmm. about. He gives control to the first officer and he starts troubleshooting. The captain selected alt on the attitude and compass stabilization switch. And after five seconds, his ADI corrected itself and it showed the correct role. Hmm. When they were in level flight, he switched it back to normal and the ADI operated normally until they had to make a turn and it froze again. So he reselected alt and continued the rest of the flight like this. And what what that does is when when he selects alt, that makes his ADI, instead of using its information, it goes to an alternate source and it pulls its ADI information from a different unit. So he knows, essentially, he's troubleshooting. He's like, oh, mine's not working. If I switch it to alt to the backup, then it starts working. Okay, so it's that third one. Correct. That's what the previous crew did. He's like, oh, anytime we start a turn, my ADI messes up. I'll just, I'm just going to switch it to alt. It's fine. And like I've said, so then the, when he switches it to alt, the ADI takes information from the third initial reference unit instead of number one. Like we said before, there's three yeah. of them. One for the captain, one for the first officer, and a third one for a reference. So when he switches alt... It starts pulling its data from the third initial reference unit instead of the first one. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like there's, yeah. a, there's a lot. Okay, that's like no, a no, mouthful it, of stuff. But, but yeah, it, his thing's not working. He uses the backup. Exactly. So when they landed in Stansted, the flight engineer, you know, entered the problem into the technical log, which unfortunately was destroyed in the accident. So the investigators couldn't look at it. And the flight engineer consulted the flight reporting manual to make sure he used the right terminology and the fault code. Because when things break, you know, it gives a code. So in the log, he writes down what the problem is uses the correct terminology and writes down the code. Then he tells the ground engineer about the problem and he explains that when alt was selected, the ADI worked properly and that the switch was back in the norm position. Mm. However, it's not known if the ground engineer passed this information on to the new crew. You were asking about that earlier. Mm-hmm. The ground engineer, you know, he passed away in the, in the crash as well, so they weren't able to interview him. So they don't know if he explicitly told the new crew about this problem or not. Dang. They don't know because he could have done it before they got on the flight right and the the black box would have recorded it right if they'd done it right before takeoff there would be logs Mm -hmm. of any work like i said the one of the logs the technical log that the previous flight engineer had worked on was destroyed in the crash however you know there's still logs on the ground and other there's uh, there should be a paper trail for them to follow okay so there's this thing called a fault reporting manual that's supplied 
by the manufacturer, and it's specific to each model of aircraft. Mm-hmm. This was carried on the aircraft itself. However, there's another document called the Fault Isolation Manual that they used to interpret the codes from the Fault Reporting Manual into actual maintenance procedures. Remember I said the flight engineer wrote down the code? Yeah. So the ground engineer should look in his Fault Isolation Manual, you know, look up what does this code mean, and be like, oh, okay, here's the code. This is what it means, and here's how to fix it. I did that with my car. I was going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) If you ever have like a, I think they call it ODB codes on your car, like it spits out error codes and you can like look them up and see what the problem is, like for a check engine light. Yeah, I was so proud of myself. I had a check engine light. I got a little machine on Amazon that just like plugged in under the steering wheel. It it spit out a code. I Googled that code on the internet and and I was like, oh. Most likely, I just need a new gas cap, and that was it, and I fixed it. I, ne- I never followed up with you about yeah. that. I know you had looked the code up, and that's what it said. So putting a new gas cap on did yeah. actually fix it? Yeah. Oh. And I was like, nice. cool. I saved myself probably like $200 from going to get it checked out at a repair yeah. shop. So cool. Oh, great. The code system works. Yeah, it does. And the same thing here. There's a code, and in, instead of Google, you know, they're, they're going to yeah. look it up in a, a manual. This is, what did I say, 1999. Google was probably just launching back then. Wow. So according to the fault reporting manual code, the correct action, this was a little more complicated than replacing a a gas cap. Uh Uh, What they should have done was replace the number one inertial navigation unit. Replace the whole unit. Just Right. It's a bad unit. Right. The fault isolation manual would normally be held by ground engineers. However, Korean Airlines had not supplied their Stansted engineer support contractor with a copy of the manual. And it's not believed that they had one amongst the documents that they brought with them. So... The manual that interprets the codes and tells you what to fix wasn't there at the airport. Oh, that seems like an important manual to have. It seems like an important manual, doesn't it? Yeah. Was it just for that plane? Like they didn't have that plane's manual? Yeah, they specifically did not have this one. I don't know if they were missing others as well. But Mm -hmm. I can say specifically for this kind of seven, for this, you know, Boeing 747, they did not have the manual that they needed in order to interpret the code. So there was another engineer on the ground who they don't name in the report. They referred him as Engineer A. Uh So Engineer A was doing some standard pre-flight maintenance when the ground engineer turned his attention to the technical log. Engineer A looked at the log but could not recall the exact wording used but remembered the words unreliable indication, normal and alternate. He couldn't remember if they were written or just mentioned in conversation. The Korean Airlines ground engineer told Engineer A he wanted the appropriate tools to remove the ADI and cleaning fluid to clean the connectors. So engineer, just to clarify, Engineer A is a different engineer. I, he worked for a different airline uh-huh. who was just there. And the, the Korean Airlines engineer approaches Engineer A to ask, like, hey, do you have some tools I can borrow? You know, some, some stuff I could use to clean these connectors on the ADI? So it's just like, he's just another mechanic who's there and uh-huh. just happens to get, like, pulled in to help out. Okay, so they're, and they're trying to fix it, I guess? Right. So the Korean Airlines ground engineer, it's his job to fix it. Just engineer A is, you know, like lending him tools and like giving him another set of hands just to be nice, you know? Yeah. Engineer A told investigators that avionics was not his discipline. So he was not able to judge the nature of the fault. But removing the ADI is a straightforward task. So that's what, you know, they started to do. Uh So engineer A helps him remove the ADI. And the ground engineer from Korean Airlines notices that one of the sockets had been pushed back and felt he indicated this was significant. So like... The connector between the ADI and where it connects into the avionics was like a little pushed back and messed up. On the plane? Yeah, in the plane. So putting in a new one might not fix it. Right. So what they decide to do is to like reseat the socket. 
they're like, you know, like the, it's like when you have like a connector and the pins aren't lining up and it's uh-huh. like not quite going all the way in. You're like, oh, this isn't what they did. But analogy would be like grabbing a pair of pliers and like straightening the pins out and like, okay. you know, try, trying to make sure it connects a little more securely. Yeah, yeah. So engineer A calls one of his colleagues who they refer to as engineer B. Engineer B shows up and the Korean Airlines engineer points out to the ADI and asks if they can help him reseat the pushed back pins. And Engineer B, you know, is confident that he understood the request, but asked what the problem was and was shown the technical log. He then reseats, you know, the socket, reconnects the ADI to the instrument panel. Before testing the instrument, Engineer B turned on all three of the inertial navigation systems at the same time. And someone who was in a crew uniform enters a cockpit and comes in and sits in the first officer's seat. So there was a problem with inserting the present position into the inertial navigation system. And the person sitting in the first officer's seat was able to solve this. So it's like, you know, just entering information to the flight management system. And the report, there's no definitive answer as to who was sitting in the first officer's seat. Mm -hmm. It's a little vague. It was almost certainly the actual first officer for the flight, but there's no definitive answer. So the report's a little vague there. Okay. So the first officer, you know, happens to show up and it's like, oh, you know, he knows obviously the flight computer a little better and he's able to, to program it with their position and solve that problem. When that happens... Engineer B saw that the attention flags on each ADI retracted from view, but not at the same time. This caused that comparator warning to activate. So they're like saying, oh, they don't align. There's like, so when you're looking at the ADI, if there's a problem with it, there's like Mm -hmm. a little flag that comes down. A little, they call it the attention flag. It's like a little red or orange flag. Like an actual physical flag? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's, it's, it looks like it's, it doesn't look like, you know, like the American flag or anything. It was like, it looks like a little tab. That pops down. Okay. That just says like attention. Just lets you know, hey, something's wrong with this. That's cool. So, That's actual physical, like bloop. You know, yeah. like versus uh, like again a warning light. Yeah. Nowadays, in some glass panels, you know, it's going to be a warning light. But this was a little older, and you know, if it's like an actual physical gauge instead of a like an electronic display, yeah, it's a little physical tab that pops down. So you know, when they first start up and part of like the the troubleshooting everything, the attention flags pop down, and then you know they all retract. However, they didn't, on all three of them, they did not retract at the same time, which is why the, the alarm starts to, to sound. Is that like when you first get in your car, your, your lights, when you turn on the car, your lights flash on for a second? Yeah, very, very, very similar. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say that's a, that's a good comparison. Okay, but then this time it's like there was a discrepancy. Right, they, did, they didn't all go away at the same time. So it's like, oh, that's, hmm. why did that happen? Yeah. You know, when that happens, Engineer B tests the captain's ADI and he saw the correct response. The test was then repeated with the attitude and compass stabilization switch selected to alt with the same results. They then successfully tested it again in norm. You know, and remember, norm is when it's the one that from didn't work. Correct. And uh, the test was successful. Oh. And engineer B asks, you know, you need anything else? They say no. He takes off. Both engineer A and B recalled that the ground engineer from Korean Airlines said he would take care of the paperwork. And engineer A and B left to finish the rest of their duties. No copies of either the transit checklist or the relevant technical log page were retained at Stansted, which is against UK and International Civil Aviation Organization regulations. It was understood that British Airways, who were handling the aircraft, had already been taking photocopies of the relevant technical log pages. Engineer A and B worked for British Airways, by the way. I didn't say that earlier. Okay, so there wasn't a log where? At the airport. So when they do this uh-huh. and they fill out the logs, you know, there should be copies of those logs left at the airport because the work was done there. But no copies were left there, which is against regulation. Oh, okay. 
So you, you were Why? asking about paper trail earlier. I don't know. It just things weren't done the way they should have been. They were I running mean, behind. Yeah, look at what look at what they're doing. I mean, yeah, they, they don't know what the problem is. They're just pulling parts out and be like, oh, this looks weird. You know, let's <laughs> let's bend that and see if that fixes it. Okay, yeah, that's a good way. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing, and they're like, I don't know. Yeah, and again, I'm not going to blame engineer A or B here. You know, they're just trying to be helpful. The ground okay. engineer for Korean Airlines, it's his responsibility. He's the one who tells them, hey, help me do this. They're like, okay, you know, they they're just trying to to yeah. do what the other engineer says. There's nothing quite like the feeling of gathering around a warm fire on a cool evening and a smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove makes your outdoor moments even more memorable. Because, you know, instead of having to constantly dodge campfire fumes, you can sit back, relax, and actually enjoy the fire. Ah, what a great feeling. Right now, you can get a great deal on a Solo Stove fire pit. I love it. I've been using a Solo Stove on my back patio for a little while, and uh, it's great. It's awesome to just go out on a nice evening and have a little bit of warmth from the fire and not just get totally inundated by smoke. It's so easy to use, super quick to uh, just get a fire started and super easy to clean up. There's, you know, just pure ash that you can clean out from there. So upgrade your backyard with a solo stove fire pit. It's the perfect catalyst for getting outside, spending more time with family and friends. You can build lasting memories around a solo stove fire pit. Solo stove fire pits are brilliantly engineered. They're made with premium grade 304 stainless steel and a 360 degree airflow system that maximizes efficiency while minimizing smoke. Super easy to light with a few bits of starter. Your fire is blazing in minutes. It's perfectly portable. You can take the solo stove with you on camping trips and more. So shop now, get up to 30% off fire pits all month long and use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at checkout to get an extra $20 off plus a lifetime warranty and free 30-day returns. Just go to solostove.com. Remember, you get $20 off when you use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. You know what's great? Receiving fresh coffee directly at home that's customized to exactly what you want. I've been getting trade for a little while now. got a few different coffees that have been sent to me, and it's awesome. It's like it's tailored exactly to my taste, the kind of coffee I like in the format that I want in order to prepare coffee at home. Trade Coffee connects customers to the freshest, best-tasting coffee they've ever made at home by partnering with the country's best craft roasters. These are independent businesses from big cities to small towns. Trade customers are truly impactful for these independent roasters, often being the largest source of new growth for them. That's expert-tasted coffee. The Trades Coffee team actually taste test thousands of coffees to keep 450 different kinds live and ready to ship every day. There's no one perfect coffee, but there is perfect coffee for you, and Trades human-powered algorithm will find it. Trades so confident they'll match you right the first time that if they don't, they'll take your feedback, and an actual coffee expert will work with you to send you a brand new bag for free. They've got a great little quiz on their website. You just answer a couple of questions. You'll get your own personalized variety of coffee delivered fresh to you as often as you like, with no gimmicks, Trade can deliver a bag of freshly roasted coffee as either whole beans or ground for however you brew it at home. They guarantee you'll love your first order or they'll replace it for free. It's great. I got a little espresso machine myself, so I got to get a specific kind of grind for that. Uh, I'm a little lazy. I don't want to grind it myself. I could, though. Uh, they offer that option if I wanted whole bean, but I prefer for them to grind it for me and it comes out just right, just the way I want. Right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order, plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash blackboxdown. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. So get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash blackboxdown and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash blackboxdown for $30 off. I'm sure you've noticed, but spring is here. We're so close to feeling that soft grass under our feet, but first we need to get our lawn back. Thankfully, Sunday gets your lawn growing and helps keep it healthy all season long. Worried about chemicals that you're using to keep your yard looking the best? Traditional lawn care lays down 90 million pounds of pesticides each year, 
Sunday's different. They're on a mission to change how people care for their yards. Most of us might not think about our lawns in the winter, but it's the time to prep for the year. You're probably thinking you have so much work to do to get it green and healthy again, but Sunday takes all that work out of it for you. Sunday can help you grow a beautiful lawn without the guesswork or the nasty chemicals. Their custom plans include fertilizer and everything you need to easily care for your lawn with ingredients like seaweed, iron, molasses. You can feel good uh, with kids and pets being around. All you have to do is visit GetSunday.com, put in your address, and their lawn analysis tool does the rest. They use soil and climate data to create a personal nutrient plan delivered to your door when you need it. Just attach the ready-to-use pouch to a garden hose and spray. Takes less than 15 minutes. Couldn't be easier. Best of all, the stuff really works. Uh, Sunday's offering our listeners 20% off. Full season plans start at just $129. You can get 20% off at checkout when you visit GetSunday.com slash BlackBoxDown. That's 20% off your custom plan at GetSunday.com slash BlackBoxDown. So there's, there's, there's kind of a little point that I glossed over there. I was, I was curious to see if you were going to catch it or not. That's actually very important. So remember I said that, you know, when the warnings go off and they test the captain's ADI, uh-huh. you know, it seems to be working. They switch, you know, they put it back in norm and it seems to be working. Yeah. If you remember, the previous flight crew said it was working fine until they started banking. And that's oh, when yeah. it stopped working. Right. Yeah, so yeah, they're yeah. testing it on the ground. They're not banking. It looks like it's working. It's not. Mm, it's still broken. It's still they just broken. Put the, they just put the same one back in. And exactly. How would they know that it wasn't working? They wouldn't at this point, but they don't know what the problem is. There's no way to know without being in. That seems a little scary that they don't. There's no way to test it correctly on the ground. If, if they fully understood the problem, they would probably have understood that the test that they just did was insufficient to troubleshoot the issue that the crew reported. Okay. But they don't know. Like I said, engineer A and B are just kind of like trying to be helpful to the Korean Airlines engineer, who again, doesn't have the manual to interpret the code Mm. for the error he was given. They're just kind of trying something. It's like, I don't know when you're I'm sure everyone's encountered a problem where it's like you're working on something like, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to kind of tinker with it and see if I can figure yeah. it out. You're like, well, it's fine when you're at home, but when you're working on a plane, that's not how you should approach it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The investigators believe that the captain of the accident flight was probably aware of the defect since he had an opportunity to question the ground engineer and because one of the flight crew had been on the flight deck while the ADI was being messed with. If any of the crew had doubts about the serviceability of the ADI, there was plenty of time during start and taxi for a comment to be made. That being said, nothing relevant to the ADI was recorded on the cockpit voice recorder. It's possible something was said during the takeoff brief, which was not recorded by the cockpit voice recorder. But if the captain had any doubts about the ADI, it's reasonable to assume that the point would have been re-emphasized at some point prior to takeoff. So I think you had been asking earlier, like, did they know about the problem? There's no definitive answer to that. Chances are, you can speculate, they probably did know about it, but there's no record of them ever talking about it. Well, yeah, because the first officer came in and sat down, presumably. Right. There's no way to know definitively, but most likely, yes. But they also thought they fixed it. Correct. they wouldn't have talked about it as much. Correct. So that's why I was a little cagey in my uh, response earlier. So, like I said, it wasn't mentioned in the cockpit voice recorder, and the lack of any recorded comment indicated none of the flight crew was concerned about the ADI. Like you said, they all assume it's fixed. Mm-hmm. The mechanics there, the guy who fixed it, is, is in there with them. So you'd be like, yeah, that guy fixed it. It's not a problem. It's fine. And it's also noted the crew was subject to several distractions before takeoff. Like I said, when they first contacted air traffic control, they were told that their flight plan could not be found. And it turns out that 
you know, the, the ground crew or the appropriate agents hadn't submitted the flight plan. And it wasn't until 542 that air traffic control received the flight plan and advised the crew of their clearance. Then once that was done, there was a delay getting a vehicle to push them back. And it wasn't until 613 that they received their pushback clearance. Then during the pushback, the tug was having problems, which caused more delays. Mm. It was just like, it was just one of those things. Like, I mean, imagine showing up to work and it's like, oh, my computer's not working. Okay, let me fix that. Oh, my monitor's not working. Okay. Oh, my mouse is out of battery. It's just like, <laughs> oh, like one thing after another, right? It's like, uh-huh. I, just want to, I just want to get to work. It's like, nope, got to fix this, got to fix this. It's like that kind of, I'm, I'm sure we've all, anyone yeah. can relate to that. It's like, you try to get, you just want to get your work done, but stuff keeps popping up that's preventing you from doing it. It's, mm-hmm. it's frustrating. Yeah. So clearance of taxi was given 58 minutes after the crew first made contact with air traffic control. And it's not unusual, you know, for delays. We've talked about this kind of stuff mm-hmm. before. But, you know, these obviously are a little unusual, a little more than ordinary. And it honestly, it made the captain kind of upset. It made him it made him pretty frustrated. Oh, at who exactly? Or just generally? Well, it's like the kind of thing where he's mad at the situation. So he starts taking it all out on the people around him. Oh, like he starts getting really snappy and getting mad at the first officer. You know, he like petty things. He's like getting mad at the first officer for not handling certain radio calls and for talking too much when responding to air traffic control. You know, the captain tells first officer, Roger alone is a sufficient response. So he's like, he's just in a bad mood now. <laughs> he's, all you need to say is Roger. <laughs> right. It's like, <laughs> like, you don't have to. I mean, I get it. You know, you don't want to occupy too much time, but there, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's really no need. So like this is starting to create an environment where, the crew members don't want to talk. Like they don't want to yeah. get the, they don't want to get the captain angry. So it's like, oh, let's just kind of be Everyone quiet, be quiet, and, and don't talk. Yeah, wow. You yeah. know those awkward situations where someone's mad and like the room gets quiet because nobody <laughs> wants to like spark any more anger. It's like that kind of situation. Now. And then there was the issue with the DME. Remember, I mentioned that before. Yeah, the distance measuring equipment. Uh, right. Equipment. So the captain's unsure if the DME is working properly because, like I said, it's showing weird indications. Is there a correlation between that and the and the ADI? Yeah. Um, no, probably not. This would be something separate. I, I don't know specifically what happened to their DME uh-huh. because they ended up checking it out and they see that the equipment is functioning correctly. So it might have just been like a configuration issue. Remember, eventually I say the flight engineer says he, he took care of it. Mm-hmm. So it was probably just like a minor configuration thing. But, you know, nevertheless, you know, the first officer starts checking all the indications and that's when, you know, I said the flight engineer chimes in and says, everything's okay. Because mm-hmm. he thought he'd fixed it. Right. And this is, you know, this is, like I said, totally separate from the ADI issue. And, you know, while all of this is going on, there's another method that they can use to navigate. Uh-huh. We've talked about these before. You know, the captain could use a VOR radial to determine his turning point. And VORs are just like radio beacons that a plane can use to tell what direction it's flying in. They're just all over the place. And you, you like tune into them and there's like a little instrument that shows you I know, how you're flying in relation to this radio signal. And you can use these VORs. That's like before GPS, you know, before, mm-hmm. you know, really advanced computer systems in planes, VORs are how planes used to navigate across the country or across, you know, big stretches of land. So that's, you're saying instead of the distance measuring unit. Right. Instead it. of like, if the DME was really acting up, they can always use their VOR to navigate. Yeah, so not, they, a, not a big deal. Okay. Even like in my 
pilot lessons. Even I get taught how to use a VOR, right? It's like uh-huh. super basic, super easy to do. But he might have, he was still frustrated. You know, like, like, how am I even going to do this? Yeah. Right. Like you said, you know, he's upset. So he might not be thinking about it. But, you know, if they had thought, let's just do use our VOR, then they wouldn't have to worry about the DME. It'd be one less thing to worry about. But of course, you know, he's focused on and thinking about this DME problem after takeoff, which may have affected his attention and what he's looking at and what he's paying attention to while flying. You know, it's always bad to have a distraction and not actually be in the moment. Mm -hmm. So when they're, you know, when they take off and when they're climbing out, there's three of those comparator warnings that go off during the climb out. The first one was triggered by a disturbance in the roll attitude of the aircraft as they were 600 feet in the air. And there was no response from the crew to this warning. What? They just didn't respond? They didn't do anything. And the horns were probably automatically silenced when the aircraft rolled back to wings level. You know, so, you know, they they get a little disturbance, the alarms go off, but then they're level. Remember, I said the ADI works fine when they're level. So then they level out and the alarm just goes off. Okay. And they didn't react at all. It starts going off and they just... No sit, reaction. Sit Remember, silent. he's mad. He's mad. They don't want to talk. Mm. But even though the alarm, the, even though the audible horn silences itself, there still would have been red lights that have continued to flash until someone cancels them. Oh, okay. But they, can't they tell from the logs or, or, or the black box or anything of like that they turn it off? They, they cancel the lights? Well, they- it's kind of a moot point because eight seconds later, it goes off again. No. <laughs> and again, no response from the crew. So like- wow. It doesn't matter if they silence it or not because eight seconds later, it's going off again. And like I said, the crew doesn't respond. But, you know, at this point, the captain's, he's still talking about the DME. And they they have their left turn coming up. And then five seconds later, when they start that left turn, the alarms go off again. And, you know, this time I can tell you for sure they were canceled by the pilots. No one said anything. They just kind of turned the alarm off. That's weird, right? That they're like freaking out and no one says anything and they're just... <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, these warnings are going off. Now let's just turn them off. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's there's no like, why are these going off? No communication. It's just like sit in silence <laughs> like that. Just And we've talked about this extensively. Like this is, this is the fundamentals of CRM, crew resource management, cockpit resource management, whatever you want to call it. There has to be constant communication and exchange of information. But they're just all shut down. And remember when I talked about this earlier, I said, you know, the flight engineer started making comments about the bank attitude. You know, he starts saying like bank, bank. Uh-huh, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. The flight engineer is the one who's looking around like, oh, my God, you know, what's going on? You know, he he's, he, you know, in this copy voice recorder, you, you hear him say the bank is not accepting, indicating, you know, he's kind of like in disbelief that the aircraft is not responding to the left roll. You know, so which kind of means that he's probably looking at the captain's ADI uh-huh. because they, they're actually they're turning to the left, but the ADI is not reflecting it because remember the captain's ADI is broken. So he keeps turning to the left and doesn't realize it's so it's, it's just frozen flat. Like exactly, it's frozen in a position that shows that their wings level that they're not actually turning. But in reality, the captain's turning left and the plane's starting to bank more and more to the left, which is why the flight engineer starts calling out bank, bank. Oh, it's. But that's not even a that's not even clear what he's saying. He so that's kind of a standard call out uh-huh. for when your bank angle is greater than thirty degrees. Okay. So like at first, remember when I he says the bank is not accepting, he's probably looking at the captain turning the the controls and you know the ADI is not moving. But then he looks over at the first officers, and that's when he starts saying bank, bank, oh, okay. because they're they're banking more than thirty degrees. He's trying to call attention to it to the captain. The captain doesn't realize it and just keeps turning to the left really hard? Correct. Correct. Ooh. 
And how high up are they at this point? They just took off. They're less than a minute off the ground. So, so I mean, a couple thousand feet, maybe. Oh, not very much room for error. Right, exactly. And then he, you know, he says, and I'll, by the way, these remarks that he's making are in Korean. They're, these are translated. Uh-huh. So he then says the equivalent of standby indicator also not working, which means he's, you know, he's telling the captain to look at the other indicator to figure out which ADI to use. But the other one isn't working now? It's, I mean, that's what the translation says, but I think he's just trying to alert the captain to look at another indicator. Okay. The other indicators were working fine. It was just the captain's that was not working. Okay, but maybe he doesn't know, maybe he thinks it's not working right. because of how hard the captain's turning. Right, he's, so I think he's just trying to alert, like, hey, indicator's not working, like, look around, try to yeah. figure out which one is correct. So, you know, like I mentioned, this is a fundamental breakdown in CRM. Mm-hmm. Korean Airlines had established CRM training in 1986 based on some of the incidents that we've talked about before. You know, this is an American model that came up uh, as a result of other incidents. But the investigating team sent to observe the training. So the investigators go to Korea to watch the Korean Air training as a result of this incident to see if they're properly training CRM. Uh-huh. And when they're observing the training, they can't adequately assess the training techniques used since it was in Korean and they were there for a short period of time. <laughs> so it's this This seems like a fundamental blunder to me. Um, Wait, this, when was this? This was before. This was this was, this was was after. As a result oh. of this incident, the, the investigators go to Korea to observe the, the training and they, they don't know what they're looking at. This is, that, that, this, that's just kind of dumb to me. Yeah, why would they go to, let's go check this out and say, well, none of us speak they're not, Korean. They're, so they're, they're not speaking oh English. God. What's going on here? So, you know, it, what happens here, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory based on everything that we've, you know, laid mm-hmm. out now. Yeah. The plane was just banking to the left. They have, they're at really low altitude and the, you know, the left wing clips the ground oh. and the plane just, you know, impacts into the ground immediately after that. Did they bank so hard they actually, but they were, they, they lose altitude too, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, they, they, they bank, lose altitude then continue their bank the left wing you know digs into the ground which then you know causes the entire plane to slam into the ground and, and the captain never tried to correct his bank angle no he was so fixated on his adi in his mind probably he thought that the controls were not responding to him he probably thought that they were in level flight the whole time the whole time yeah and just kept trying to bank to the left and didn't even realize oh my god that's that's crazy. Yeah, if you remember, I said that uh, the air traffic control saw the flight take off and disappear into the clouds. There were some low clouds, so and it's nighttime, and so, so they can't really see, see the ground. Right. So he just continued banking to the left until they hit the ground. Mm. It's weird too that you. I know we talked about it, but like how he couldn't feel it. Yeah, it's it's really scary. I've seen videos that flight instructors will post online where you know they'll they'll tell like a student pilot like to close their eyes. And to try to maintain the plane in wings level flight. Uh And nobody can ever do it. Inevitably, every pilot, like every time the plane starts banking and starts going to the ground. And then, you know, the instructor will tell the student, open your eyes. It's like, oh, oh my God, you know, (laughs) you you, you don't feel it. It's just, we've talked about this before. Our human senses, we've evolved with them thinking we're always on the ground, you know, going at relatively slow speeds. Your senses just fail you if you can't, you know, see the ground. Can't see the ground and you can't read your equipment right if and the you're supposed you know if you can't see the ground if you you know if you have trouble looking outside you have to rely on your instruments and in this case the instrument failed them and he didn't look at any of the other ones and no one spoke up soon enough correct which is frustrating because 
the first, from the first officer's perspective, his ADI is working. He's watching the captain yeah. crash the plane. I was about you know? to say, the first officer didn't say anything this whole time? No. This is a little more of a, this is like an intangible cause of the accident. And this is, a, this ended up being a huge problem for Korea Airlines where I, 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 it, it's, it's difficult to say it or it's difficult to explain, but essentially the first officer deferred to the captain since the captain was more senior and, you know, felt that he was not in a position to question the captain, that the captain should always be correct because he was the more senior pilot. Which is, again, you talked about crew resource management, other episode. That is... That's the epitome of bad CRM. Yeah. You should feel confident and communicating things mm-hmm. that are incorrect. Like, you should feel like you, exactly. you aren't allowed. But he was... Yeah, he was all in a bad mood. Yeah. And the investigators, you know, when they look into this, they discover that in this incident, even when the plane was still 500 feet above the ground, this was recoverable. Because all they had to do is just straighten up. Oh, they just had to straighten out. <laughs> like <laughs> they, they could have saved this if they had just straightened out. Even only 500 feet above the ground, they had time to save this. What would have happened if the first officer had tried to take control or like had turned his? So in this kind of plane, uh-huh. the controls are linked to each other. So, you know, when the captain is banking to the left, the first officer's controls are also banking to the left. So he could have... He, he could have turned his to the right and it would have like kind of jerked the controls out of the captain's hands or he might have had to wrestle and overpower the captain a little bit. Which well, it, neither is ideal, he, but... It's better it's than, than, than crashing. crashing. Yeah. Right. Korea Airlines actually had a serious safety problem at this point in history. Uh-huh. This was their fifth accident in two and a half years. Oh, Think about that. This was their fifth accident in two and a half years. This was their third accident in 1999. Oh, man. So, <laughs> I, like, average-wise, for the number of flights that they're doing, how bad is that? Well, let me put it this way. They haven't had one since then. This, oh. was, this has been their last <laughs> crash. Okay. So, they got better. This was a turning point for Korean Airlines. They really turned around their uh, their safety record after this because, you know, once you start having this many accidents, nobody's going to want to work with you. Mm-hmm. Like either car, no one's going to want to ship cargo, passengers aren't going to want to fly. So like they really had to do a fundamental shift in their crew training and in, you know, in order to try to improve things. And now I consider Korea Airlines like one of the safest like flagship airlines in the world. Oh, I mean, I guess it makes sense if they haven't had an accident since what, 1999? Yeah, this was the last time. Anyway, I got a little distracted there talking about that. So, of course, we're going to dig into the findings of the, of yeah. the uh, incident here. But we said the aircraft was serviceable on the flight from Seoul to Uzbekistan. On departure from Uzbekistan, the captain's ADI did not indicate the roll attitude correctly. The actions of the crew to deal with the ADI fault on takeoff from Uzbekistan were prompt and effective. Like I said, they noticed it was broken. The captain immediately looks at the other instruments and says, oh, I just got to switch this to alt. They solve it. Mm-hmm. During the flight to Stansted, the crew determined that the fault occurred with the inertial navigation unit number one selected as the source of the attitude information for their ADI. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they troubleshot it. They knew what was wrong. They entered the fault into the technical log as detailed by the fault reporting manual. And the flight engineer gave a verbal brief to the Korean ground engineer, including information that the ADI worked correctly with the captain's attitude and compass stabilization switch set to alt. So all this is just setting up that the previous crew did everything right. Okay. All this is just like they're 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 clearing the previous crew of wrongdoing with all of this information. Well, that's okay. Cool. A copy of the f- aircraft fault isolation manual was not available to the ground engineer at Stansted. Use of the manual would have directed maintenance to replace inertial navigation unit number one. Like we said, he didn't have the correct 
manual to troubleshoot the code. So they, he just kind of started trying to guess at what the problem was. Mm-hmm. At Stansted, the Korean Airlines ground engineer identified a fault with the captain's ADI. I have a question. What sh- if he didn't have the manual, what was the proper protocol? Like uh, he, pro- uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a mechanic, but my guess would have been he should have called headquarters or called Seoul or called uh-huh. a different airport and asked the manual and asked them, what does this code mean? Yeah, that makes sense. So like we said, at the airport instead, he identifies a fault with the captain's ADI that, you know, he got some those UK engineers to help him. Uh, you know, that said, they kind of straightened the pins and reseated the ADI, but that actually didn't fix the problem. And there's no record of what the ground engineer entered in the technical log to clear the aircraft for flight because, again, the log was destroyed in the incident. And there was no copy left on the ground, as there should have been. Mm. There's no record of what the ground engineer verbally briefed the outbound crew regarding the rectification of the ADI fault. A flight crew member from the outbound crew was in the cockpit when some of the rectification of the ADI was being carried out, but there's no record of what he subsequently briefed his fellow crew members. Again, remember we said most likely the first officer showed up, but there's no record of anyone talking about the broken ADI. There was nothing recorded on the cockpit voice recorder relating to the fault with the ADI, although there was no record of the captain's departure brief, which is normally given prior to engine start. The relevant briefs may have taken place more than 30 minutes before the impact may have been recorded over due to the limited 30-minute duration of cockpit voice recorder. Remember I said there was no mention of the ADI, but there was no departure brief on the cockpit voice recorder earlier because we're dealing back with that time when there was only 30 minutes of recorded time on a cockpit voice recorder. Mm-hmm. So since they were delayed so long before takeoff, yeah. his departure brief would have been before the 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Luckily, not an issue anymore. Cockpit voice recorders record way longer than 30 minutes now. There were delays to the aircraft start and taxi due to factors outside the crew's control. These delays appear to have caused some frustration to the captain. Like we said, mm-hmm. put him in a bad mood. The record from the cockpit voice recorder indicated there was some confusion in the captain's mind during taxi and takeoff as to the correct operation of the DME at Stansted. The cockpit voice recorder indicated the captain was basing his turn position after takeoff on the DME range rather than an alternative VOR radial. Like we said, he could have used a VOR for his turn. He didn't. He was really focused on this DME, which in his mind was unreliable. The crew were given a frequency change after takeoff, which was not required to be pre-notified, although the frequency was available within Stansted Air Traffic Control. This may have contributed to the distraction of the first officer from his monitoring duties. Remember I said that they had to change frequencies? Uh-huh. They say it may have distracted the first officer and maybe he didn't notice the bank right away. That's really not a big deal, though, a frequency change. They should have been expecting it. So I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just throwing all the information out there. Yeah, yeah. They're just like, here's... Anything that could have gone wrong, here's what right. might have been it. Throughout the accident flight, the captain's ADI showed a near zero roll attitude. Like we said, it was pretty much wings level the entire time. During the accident flight, the ADI comparator warning activated on three separate occasions. There was no audible acknowledgement from any crew member regarding these warnings. And we've talked about this before. I mean, we've been we've talked about incidents where alarms go off and people just silence them or don't talk about I know, them. Oh, I know, which is crazy to me. Yeah, no, no, no questioning of, huh, why is that going off? Is that something we need to worry about? And then following that initial comparator warning, the visual warnings would have continued to display in front of each pilot until individually canceled. And these warnings were individually canceled prior to final impact. There was no evidence the captain detected the aircraft was at an extreme roll and pitch attitude. The first officer either did not detect that the aircraft was at an extreme attitude or having identified the abnormal attitude was inhibited from bringing this to the attention of the captain. So we kind of talked about that. Either he didn't know that they were at a weird attitude, which is unlikely, or he just didn't say anything, which is, in my opinion, the more likely uh, scenario. Yeah. 
The flight engineer made several warning calls to indicate his awareness that there was a problem with the bank indication and angle of bank. Remember? Yeah. He said a few things bank, and called bank, out bank, bank. It's not, re- right. not, not taking or whatever. Mm-hmm. With aggressive control inputs, the aircraft was capable of recovery from its extreme unusual attitude two seconds after reaching its maximum altitude without exceeding the limit load factor of 2G. So again, this was recoverable is what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And the ground engineer had insufficient technical knowledge of the ADI-INU interface for troubleshooting and defect rectification. Then lastly, there's a couple of causal factors here. The pilots did not respond appropriately to the comparator warnings during the climb after takeoff from Stansted, despite prompts from the flight engineer. The captain maintained a left roll control input, rolling the aircraft approximately 90 degrees of left bank, and there was no control input to correct the pitch attitude throughout the turn. So they were pretty much turned entirely to the left like 90 degrees would mean that their wings are straight up and down yeah when you talk about not being able to i mean i would feel gravity would start like you're literally you'd be like leaning well when when you're in i guess you're strapped in well when you're in a banked turn and it's coordinated you're using rudder input as well to move the back of the plane Uh if you're executing your turn properly you feel the force pushing you down into your chair there's really no way to fully explain that. It's just what happens. Like okay. when you're when you're banking a plane, you can feel what they call it coordinate. You can feel when it's coordinated because the way the forces balance out, you're getting pressed down into your chair. So even when you're at an angle like that, if a good pilot, you know, is turning the plane, mm-hmm. you feel a force pressing you down into your seat. It might not be enough to overcome a 90 degree angle, but you know, it would be enough to confuse your senses. Okay. I get what you're saying. Yeah. That's, again, going back to the whole, like, we aren't used to doing this. Right. <laughs> Our senses don't know how to interpret this. Yeah. The first officer either did not monitor the aircraft attitude during the climbing turn or, having done so, did not alert the captain to the extreme unsafe attitude that developed. The maintenance activity at Stansted was misdirected, despite the fault having been correctly reported using the fault reporting manual. Consequently, the aircraft was presented for service with the same fault experienced on the previous leg. The number one inertial navigation unit role signal driving the captain's ADI was erroneous. So we said the maintenance they tried to do was wrong and the inertial navigation unit was still giving bad data. Mm-hmm. The agreement for local engineering support of the operator's engineering personnel was unclear on the division of responsibility, resulting in erroneous defect identification and misdirected maintenance action. Again, it's just like saying that, you know, those British Airways mechanics did come over to help, but they wasn't quite sure who was in charge. They kind of deferred to... The Korean mechanic, even though he didn't quite know what he was doing, it was just kind of a mess all around. And then finally, there's a couple of recommendations as a result of this. Korean Air needs to continue to update their training and flight quality assurance programs to accommodate CRM evolution and industry developments to address issues specific to their operational environment and ensure adaptation of imported training material to accommodate Korean culture. So again, focus on that CRM. And that last line, like adapt imported training material to accommodate Korean culture, that's kind of dealing with the not being afraid to speak up to someone who is in a more senior position. Mm -hmm. Just like some cultural differences that need to be overcome in order to properly implement CRM. The next one is for Korean Air to continue to review its policy and procedures for maintenance support at international destinations with a view to deploying sufficient of its own full-time engineers at the outstation or delegating the entire task to another operator or third-party maintenance organization locally based at the destination. If neither of these approaches is practical, then the support arrangements must be detailed and of such clarity as to preclude confusion. So they're just telling them, hey, you either need to send a full maintenance crew who can do all the work, or you need to contract another airline to do it, or you need to contract a third party who's local who can do it, right? Like Mm -hmm. none of this 
kind of like where they sent a mechanic without everything he needed. Like that's not going to work. That's not yeah. going to cut it. Like they need to really be clear about these maintenance arrangements. Mm-hmm. And then the last recommendation was Korean Air review its policy and procedures to ensure that a copy of the relevant pages of the technical log and any other transit certification documents are left on the ground at the point of departure. Again, they need to leave records on the ground because yeah. if something does go wrong, like it did here, yeah, they need to know what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's why there's a duplicate. Yes, and that's why I mean that's why these rules exist. So in in researching this incident, we're, we're pretty much done with the episode uh-huh. here. But there was a something I learned in looking into this incident. You know, we've talked about before in previous incidents how in vertical stabilizers they're sometimes weights and ballast that kind of like help the rudder deflect. We talked about it in that uh, chartered flight that crashed into the sea off of Europe mm-hmm. a couple months ago. Apparently in early 747s, like in this, this was a 747-200 specifically, they used depleted uranium as the ballast in the vertical stabilizer. What? <laughs> yeah, I guess since uranium is so heavy and dense, they'll use it uh, or they used to use it as ballast back then. And so when this plane crashed, they had to be careful when they were looking through the wreckage because they had to worry, like, what? do we need to, do we need to worry about this uranium? Like, do we need to take precautions? Uh, it turns out it was fine. It was it was not a big deal. But it's just like this weird bit of trivia uh, yeah. that there was uranium as part of just like normal operating procedure in the vertical stabilizer of older 747s. That seems I, I don't know anything. I'm not n- not nuclear physicist. I've seen uh, <laughs> HBO's um, Chernobyl. Chernobyl. So, but so that it sounds crazy that they're using uranium in planes to help to what was it to to ballast like just to be a weight to be a weight. It presumably it was safe. No, nothing ever happened as a result of it. Uh-huh. I, like again, I don't know enough about you know. I'm not a nuclear <laughs> engineer either, but I presume you know it went it went through appropriate tests and okay. was determined to be safe, which is why they did it. But it's just it's just weird to hear. I'm gonna see if we can dig into that a little more. Maybe we'll give some more information in a future episode about that. Yeah. Oh, you know, the uranium on the... What? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's it for uh, Korean Air Cargo Flight 8509. Occurred at the very end of a bad streak of safety incidents for Korea Air, Mm -hmm. which has since, like I said, really turned things around. And they're really like the epitome of safety nowadays. It's really like a top tier uh, carrier. Good. And that's why... (laughs) That's why... That's the the optimistic uh, uh, outlook at the end of this. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, that, 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 I think that's one of the things we always try to talk about is, you know, these incidents happen and they're terrible, but lessons are learned and things mm-hmm. get better. And nowadays flying is so safe because incidents like this happened in the past. Yeah, but that's it. Uh, hope you all enjoyed this episode of Black Box Down. Like we said earlier, don't forget to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. And if you like they like the show, please, you know, subscribe, leave us a review, uh, tell your friends. Um, and all that good stuff because that really helps us make it. Yeah, word of mouth really helps out podcasts. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.